Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Radio Free Oz. It's Friday, August 26, 2011, and when I came across the story I'm about to relate to you, I knew what this show was called. Nothing is certain but death and Texas. Here's what happened. Two weeks before Thanksgiving in 2003, this, this, this is an unbelievable story, top officials from Texas Governor Rick Perry's office pitched an unusual offer to the state's retired teachers. Let's get into the death business. According to the notes, which were authenticated by a meeting participant, the Perry administration wanted to help Wall Street investors gamble on how long retired Texas teachers would live. Perry was promising the state big money in exchange for helping Swiss banking giant UBS, the big toxic mortgage bastards, set up a business of teacher death speculation. Teacher death speculation. Let's poison that apple we gave her. We'll make a fortune. All they had to do was convince retirees to let UBS buy life insurance policies on them. When the retirees died, these policies would pay out benefits to Wall Street speculators, and the state, supposedly, would get paid for arranging the bets. The families of the deceased former teachers would get nothing. The meeting notes offer the most direct evidence that the Perry administration was not only intimately involved with the insurance scheme, but a leading driver of the plan. It was a backroom deal at odds with Perry's public persona as a career politician who had successfully sold Texans on his vision of minimal government intrusion. Death in Texas, on the other hand, is another matter. The first meeting with teacher groups and retirement plan officials in November 2003, recalled one attendee, was an effort by Perry's office to solicit support for the life insurance idea from teacher associations. There was little question who was promoting the plan. His office was pushing at the source that it was like, we've got to do whatever we can. Here's an innovative idea. We really want you to get on board. The governor's office was even prepared to put down a little cash up front. If retirees balked the notion of the state profiting from the deaths, they were willing to give them like the price of a pair of shoes, 50 or 100 bucks, a little, you know, a little premium. Precious little, they said, for what they were giving up. Well, messages left for Perry's uh, spokespeople requesting comment on this incredible story have not been returned. But here's the deal. The person that really was putting it together was his great mentor and now working for USB, former Senator Phil Graham. Phil had made six-figure campaign contributions to Perry's campaign and had been and may still be one of Perry's most trusted political allies and personal mentors. They say Perry worships at Graham's feet intellectually. Really, that's where, that where Graham carries most of his wisdom? In his feet? After lending political aid to Perry, Graham was poised to make a fortune from the life insurance deal. His role in the scheme had the appearance of banal corruption and cronyism, nothing more. Although Graham wasn't in on the first meeting with teacher groups, he played an active role in subsequent efforts to push the scheme. It was Graham who would make the plan a financial reality. He left the U.S. Senate in 2002 for a lucrative vice presidential post at UBS. Then he came to Austin to push the deal. Graham was hoping to put together a new package of complex assets for speculators to gamble on. Corporations had been using mass purchases of life insurance policies on their employees for years as part of an elaborate tax avoidance scheme. The government doesn't tax insurance premiums or death benefits. The employees themselves, affectionately referred to as dead peasants, 
among insurance experts, received no benefit. Only the companies who bought the policies would receive payouts when these peasants bought the farm. Graham wanted to convince investors to bet on people's lives by purchasing pools of insurance and annuities taken out on the individuals. If you don't think that this shows the inner workings of what's left of Governor Goodhair's mind and soul and morality, then all I got to say, honey, is everything you know is wrong. As you know, I've been keeping up with the story on Phil Hinkle. He's the uh, anti-gay marriage Indiana Republican accused of offering to pay a young man he met over Craigslist for a good time. He admits that he paid the man, but contends that they didn't do anything illicit. They just talked about baseball and the view. This is the guy who goes on Craigslist to men looking for men section, okay? Not men looking for men to talk about baseball. That's another category altogether. Offers the guy 80 bucks for a good time. Says, I can't be your sugar daddy all the time, but I can be your sugar daddy tonight. Is sugar daddy a baseball term? I don't know. And then a big tip ensued. According to the young man who answered the ad when... Uh, <laughs> came into the motel room, he exposed himself, and the guy recognized him as the Indiana legislator, and Hinkle is supposed to have offered him more money and his Blackberry and his iPad not to tell. Hinkle admitted to the Indianapolis Star on Tuesday that he did exchange emails with 18-year-old Cameron Gibson through Craigslist on the section of the site called Casual Encounters Between Two Men sure it isn't fantasy baseball between two fans? Hinkle also admitted that he paid Gibson 80 bucks for a good time, but said it was just baseball. I don't know. I don't frequent the men looking for men's sites. Nothing wrong with them. It's just not my thing. And I don't know. Maybe they're looking for people to talk about baseball, the infield fly rule, big stats. Maybe others get together to talk about football or hockey or bocce. But Hinkle said that when Gibson got there, they just talked about baseball and the view. Oh, they looked out the window and talked about Rocky Calavito and Mickey Mantle and whomever. So then Gibson says, that's it. I'm sorry I did it. I didn't know there was a button pushed in my head, but I didn't go over the edge. Okay, I went to the edge, but I didn't fall over the edge. What is this, some special place between men who share baseball memorabilia or, you know, trivia? There's an edge you don't want to go over. But he does say emphatically, Hinkle says, I'm not gay. Uh-huh. You remember Eric Cantor, don't you? Oh, yes, Eric Cantor, the man who says that we've got to cut, cut, cut before we can spend a penny. Well, there's a problem. It's called Hurricane Irene, okay? We aren't going to speculate on damages before it happens, period. His spokesperson, Liana Fallon, emails. But as you know, Eric has consistently said that additional funds for federal disaster relief ought to be offset with spending cuts. So in come the big wins. People lose their livings, their houses, their roofs, their children, and we can't do anything about them until we find some other place to cut the fat? This isn't 
just to lay a honey trap for Cantor. Human toll aside, hurricane damage can be very expensive. And if against all hope, Irene hits hard, this sort of parameter could put a severe dent in federal programs that are already stretched quite thin. Well, I really hope, darling, that I can get some food tomorrow for you, my little three-year-old, but there's a hurricane in Texas and we may all have to starve. It's worth pointing out that his home state of Virginia is in the line of the storm. So this, just as with the relatively minor earthquake damage, could present him with a political conundrum. Even if his non-coastal district escapes unscathed, his fellow delegates will want federal aid post-haste, sans congressional wrangling over the budget. The statement is, to be fair, an ought to, not a must. So perhaps this will be revisited. Oh, they're going to revisit him late at night. By the way, to underscore how real the scenario is, Governor Bob McDonald has declared a state of emergency in Virginia. Can you imagine what it would be like to find places to cut money every time there's like an emergency? What do we do? Go take 500 troops out of Kandahar when there's uh, too much rain in Omaha? Not a bad idea. Maybe we had a few more floods and a few more droughts. We could bring all the boys back home. You think that's doable? You think that's kind of a plan we could live with? Natural disasters end the war in AFPAC? You think that's going to happen? Well then, everything you know is wrong.